E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. In today's culinary world, chefs and sommeliers can reach an almost celebrity-like status. To some extent, the world's greatest winemakers experience this too. But historically, and still today, one of the most important parts of the wine business works in the shadows. And some of the most influential palates who guide international tastes are rarely noticed or even recognized. I'm talking about wine merchants, specifically the founders of major import companies who make decisions about what kinds of wines they will import to their markets. We can thank the Phoenicians and Carthaginians for being some of the earliest wine merchants, helping to spread the product around the Mediterranean Sea. But we've come a long way from ships with their hulls stuffed bowed astern within forests. Cardboard has even allowed us to use recycled material to ship wine instead of cutting down trees to make boxes. There are many kinds of wine merchants. Today, and I'm sure also throughout history, Wine importers sometimes take a passive role, and they simply sell the wines they find as is. These types of merchants sometimes see their jobs as protecting the purity of the winemaker's vision or the traditions of that particular region. But other merchants can help define style, and this can sometimes be very beneficial. They sometimes suggest or ask for certain kinds of wines to be made. Kermit Lynch, for example, famously requested unfiltered wines from many producers, who later stopped filtering altogether. He also helped push for refrigerated containers so wine wouldn't cook and root. An importer may suggest that some of the wine be declassified and aged less to be a glass option, or that some of the wine be shipped in large format. Merchants and importers also make other decisions that can affect what ends up on the wine list. They may make a suggestion as simple as changing the case size. Sommeliers with less space or budget constraints are more likely to buy a three-pack or a six-pack of an expensive wine than commit to a 12-pack case. Putting higher-end wines in three-pack formats influences more people to buy them, and the wine will end up on more wine lists and in more people's glasses. Merchants can mold the wine landscape of an entire market. Colonel Frederick Wildman was instrumental in bringing serious French wines to some of the most famous mid-1900s restaurants in Manhattan, such as Lutece. Importers like Jenny and Francois or the late Joe Dressner 
They helped to drive a new and thriving interest in organic and biodynamic wines in the U.S. Their actions, however indirectly, have even caused a shift in many U.S. winery practices. And newer importers are bringing the far corners of the world together. Gabrielle Simmers sees a bigger market for some of New Zealand's finest wines and is helping to bring them into the U.S. Zavrovine carries some pretty unique wines from lesser-known countries and regions, too. And there is the side of importing that maybe a lot of us would like to ignore. Huge, gigantic importers that work with million-case production wines. These importers drive global trends by keeping a steady stream of certain wines or grape varieties flowing to inexpensive retail outlets. We might not want to admit it, but these movements affect every sommelier's perspective about what they place on lists. And then there's the internet. Wine merchandising is changing today with the advent of internet sales. Wine shops can sell products remotely through emails and mail or deliver the orders without ever needing a space for a face-to-face interface with the consumer. Who knows, we might even get drone deliveries in the future. Ultimately, a good merchant understands the market that they're selling to. Merchants that choose not to make a difference will pander to fashion, and often with the result of tremendous profits. However, the merchants who truly make a meaningful difference in the world, they tend to be the ones who have a specific future vision for their current wine market, and they bring wines in that only align with their core values. Importing, especially, is a true labor of love. It's an area that's very underappreciated in our industry. We look at bottles and we think, where did this come from? And sometimes we're enthralled by the sommelier who brought it to us. And if we really love the wine, we might check out the winery. We might visit the winemaker, and we might even buy other wines from the region. But when was the last time you drank a wine you really liked and you thought, how did this get from there to my table? It's a question that fascinates me, and I'm so grateful to all the importers and wine merchants who bring us the raw materials to work with in our jobs. Without them, our wine landscape would be barren. Sustainability has never been more important. And DM is at the forefront of environmental responsibility. Having set a new standard in the world of closures, DM not only excels in the quality of its technological cork closures, but also demonstrates an incredible commitment to caring for the environment. DM has taken steps to significantly reduce its carbon footprint, embracing green electricity and renewable energy in its factories. By 2025, they aim to reduce their direct emissions from energy and processing by 55%. Their sustainable closure solution, Origine by DM, combines natural cork with a binding agent composed of 100% bio-based materials and a beeswax emulsion, a successful testament to DM's commitment to eco-friendly practices. DM has pioneered a responsible and long-term vision for cork forests, playing a crucial role in sequestering hundreds of thousands of tons of CO2 each year. Planting thousands of new cork trees, DM actively contributes to sustaining our planet's natural resources, and that is something we all benefit from every day. DM doesn't just offer technically advanced cork closures, they also lead in environmental responsibility. Learn more about DM's commitment at dm-closures.com dot com forward slash i d t t that's d i a m dash closures with an s dot com forward slash i d t t for more information 
Steve Edmonds on the show of the Edmonds St. John Winery in California. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm great, and I'm really glad to be here. Nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you. So you were doing some home brewing in the 70s, and you kind of right. got involved in that world a little bit, and then what happened next? The woman who I was married to initially back in 1971, when I met her in 1970, she made beer at home. And I kind of just, when I, when we moved in together, I sort of started kind of taking over the home brewing. I, I can't think of the life of me why, but I did. <laughs> and, you know, within a couple of years, uh, there was a, a point at which, no, it was after after uh, she became pregnant with our, our oldest child. We took this trip around the country to visit old friends on the East Coast and various other parts of the country that either of us had lived in and it took a couple of months and we spent all the money that we had and then we got back to California and had to figure out how to make money. And, uh, she had, she was a jeweler and she, you know, was, was working at that, but her, her ability to continue that after the pregnancy was obviously going to be a problem. So, uh, I actually just went over to the place where I buy, uh, or bought supplies to make beer one day. And there was a sign in the window saying help wanted, full-time and part-time. So I talked my way into a job and uh, they were, you know, happy to know that I knew how to make beer, but they said, you know, you need to learn about wine. And a, a good friend of mine, somebody that I spent time playing music with, drove at that time, drove a delivery truck for a wine importer in San Francisco and had tasted a fair amount, knew a fair amount about wine and really didn't have any friends who cared or you know were really all that interested. So when he found out that I had gotten this new job and that you know that part of it in, involved learning about wine, he said, you know, if if you like, I'll set up a tasting, and you know we'll taste through a bunch of different wines all from the same winery, and I'll you know I'll teach you what I know. And I said that sounds great, and I had no expectations at all about what it was going to be like, or, uh, you know, I, I really didn't expect very much. I think my, you know, my sort of frame of reference, uh, for any kind of alcoholic beverages in those days was that you merely opened your mouth and poured some in and swallowed. And if it didn't taste really horrible, then maybe you had a little bit more and you, you just kind of kept going until you reached a point where you either stopped or, or did something, you know, that got you in trouble. And, here for the first time, uh, you know, I was being asked to smell the wine and and swirl it around in the air, and then instead of just pouring it down my throat, actually kind of chewing on it and tasting it, and and you know, we we have preconceptions about, or or at least back in that in that era, I know I did, and I I think the general thought about w wine tasting was that there was something a little strange about it. Uh, and there was a, a movie that I had seen, uh, I think really probably before I ever got into the business, it was three Edgar Allan Poe stories and, and the, the movie stars in it were Vincent Price and Peter Lorre. And one of the, the three stories that was told was, uh, a kind of a amalgamation of the cask of Amontillado and the black cat. And in it, Vincent Price played this professional wine taster and Peter Lorre was kind of putting a move on his wife. And so he challenged him to a wine tasting and 
it was hysterically funny, but all the things that Vincent Price did were these great exaggerations, almost satirical impression of, you know, of wine tasting. And so that's the kind of thing that people thought wine tasters did in those days. And, and that, you know, you, you wouldn't be caught dead ever doing that. And then suddenly I found myself doing it and thinking that it was absolutely essential and that, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was like becoming a person that I'd never imagined. I, uh, I knew how to be. And it was all because this stuff in the glass suddenly started speaking to me. And, and, um, uh, I, I was just transfixed. You know, it was a really big deal. And what happened for you after that? This company that I worked for, within a fairly short time, they had a store uh, in Sausalito that was uh, at the north end of the main road that goes through Sausalito, Bridgeway Avenue. And, and it was in a little kind of a mini uh, sort of a shopping court. And it was set back from the road probably 60 or 70 yards and it was not well signed and nobody knew that it was there. And I was made the manager of this store nobody ever came in. So, but they had all these wine books and I would read all the wine books because that was pretty much all there was to do. But then it, it became apparent to me very quickly that just two doors up the street was a brand new wine store. So, you know, I put a sign on the door of the, the place I was working one day saying back in 15 minutes, and I went over and introduced myself to the people over there. And they said, oh, do you want to taste some wine? And because they had samples of things open or they were just tasting and trying to really just know more about what it was that they were trying to sell people. And um, so I started going over there pretty much every day. And, uh, and sometimes I'd put that sign on the door saying back in 15 minutes at about, you know, maybe one o'clock in the afternoon, I come back at around five thirty when it was closing time and <laughs> just close the store and go home. Within a fairly short time, I started working at that wine store and only just really a few months after that, the guy who was the wine buyer who I'd become pretty good friends with took a job with Sebastiani doing outside sales or something like that. And so I was kind of kicked upstairs in the wine buyer's position. And so, you know, I was tasting, just tasting stuff all the time and, and just really kind of soaking it up, you know. And uh, this was 1973 when I was working in the wine store. I, I started with the other company back in 72. And there was so much good wine available to be drunk or, or tasted in those days from all of what were thought of at that time as the most important producers in the world from Bordeaux, Burgundy, Germany, you know, the Rhone, Italy, uh, I mean, you know, just, just everywhere. And there really wasn't an awful lot of California wine around and everything was cheap. I could, I could buy at retail 1966 Leva Lascaz for $10 a bottle. And, uh, I could buy, uh, 1945 Premier Cru Bone from a good negociant for I think $15, you know, in a, in a, in a 29 Pomard premier crew from the same negociant for $30. So I got to taste all this good stuff and, and got the kind of wine education that, you know, if you were to add it up today, it would have been in the tens to maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars for, you know, the value of the wines. So I was lucky. I was really, really lucky. It was, I, I had, 
done a little bit of visiting wineries up in Napa in those days and uh, had made friends with a guy named Mike Richmond, who at the time was the sales manager for Fremark Abbey, but he was also, he had a hand in the winemaking up there. And he and I struck up a friendship and, and I would often uh, just go up there and hang out and taste wine with him and, and uh, kind of pick his brain. And he would sort of let me in on friends of his who were making wine, doing things that nobody you know, had heard about yet. And it's sort of how I found out about Chateau Mondolina because he was friends with, uh, with actually the guy who was the sales manager for Mondolino. His name was also Mike, and I, off the top of my head, I can't think of the last name. But he would kind of tell me who to go see, and and I, you know, I ended up being a really early supporter of people like Montalina, Stag's Leap, Clodeval, and and uh, Chateau Saint Jean, and Lindcrest, and you know, so forth and so on. Here was this kind of new generation, uh, post Louis Martini and post Inglenook and post BV and so forth, that were trying to make wines in a more direct sort of more directly European manner than uh, what had evolved in California, which had, 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 you know, become in certain ways much more diverse than than uh, what's been going on for the last 25 or, or so years or 30 years. But in a style that, that was all about making a lot of wine cheap because that's sort of what people wanted to buy when Louis Martini and those guys, you know, picked up the pieces after Prohibition. And here were suddenly people like Wynarski and Bernard Porte and Gurgich and, and so forth, trying to get back to, you know, top quality level and, you know, really doing what I felt were really exciting things. So what did you see as your entry into that world? Or was that your world? Well, no, I was a wine buyer and I was happy to be a wine buyer at the time. You know, I, 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 I made wine as a home winemaker, and it was reasonably good, but I, I didn't imagine that I was doing anything out of the ordinary or particularly interesting or whatever. And, and you know, there was a reason for that. I was, you know, I was using whatever grapes were available and, and just glad to get them, and, you know. And I wasn't paying that much attention, you know, as a home winemaker to what I was doing. I, I knew there were certain things that you had to do in order to have a reasonably successful outcome, which had to do with keeping things really scrupulously clean, uh, you know, minimizing the possibility of microbial contamination and all that kind of stuff, keeping your barrels full, you know, keeping your carboys full or whatever, and, and uh, using a little bit of SO2. But, you know, you can make good wine that way and you can make really mediocre wine that way. And, 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 there isn't all that much difference in what you do during, you know, the, the process to a, to a point. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't see myself at that time. I didn't imagine myself as a, as a winemaker. I, you know, I think it was a really almost insanely impulsive act to start a winery. It's, it's interesting. It, it, there's a little bit, about New York in the story. Um, Cornelia and I came back here in the summer of 1984 and I... Cornelia St. John. Cornelia St. John, my wife and, and partner. At the time I had, I was, I was actually working full-time for the United States Postal Service. I was a, a letter carrier. I was a mailman. 
and I moonlighted in the wine business at that time. I had I had had three or four jobs working for other people buying wine and kind of running the wine department in stores. Helped a guy open a store, and I was good at it. And I uh, it was recognized that I was good at it to the extent that the owner was willing to give me more and more responsibility. Um, they didn't make it worth my while. They just kept piling the responsibility on. And after a while, I just got kind of burned out, and I sort of backed away from the whole thing. And being a mailman had its benefits. I walked 10 miles every day, and I got to know everybody, you know, in about a 15-block area. There were parts of it that were that were really fun. Um, but at a certain point, you know, Cornelius said, you don't want to be a mailman forever, do you? So we were in New York in the summer of 84, and one of the things that was going on in the post office in those days was that if you lived in certain zip codes, the amount of junk mail that you got just became staggering. Uh, and the zip code that I was working in was one of those zip codes. Uh, and the, you know, what was supposed to be an eight hour day began to be routinely 10 and a half or 11 hours a day. And, uh, I'm, you know, I was making overtime and stuff, but there was a lot of pressure to keep the overtime at a minimum. So there was a lot of pressure to work faster and so forth and so on. And it, for whatever reason, in the in August of '84, the the load got to such a point where I just felt like, okay, something's got to give here. And so, you know, I thought, well, you know, Cornelius willing to put a little bit of money into some kind of a venture, and she had money which I didn't have. And uh, so we talked and I said, you know, I, I think, you know, maybe we could do some kind of a small scale wine production. And I was making it up as I went along. I mean, I was convinced that it was true on the one hand, but but I'd never done it. So I really didn't know what it meant. And uh, God bless her. You know, she said, let's do it, you know. And and so we uh, we took the plunge at the beginning of 1985. And I had no idea what I was going to make. You know, I had tasted everything, pretty much, except chocolate. I think. There wasn't any around back then. No petillon naturel either. And I don't think I'd ever had Pinot d'Onis. Um, but, you know, pretty much everything else. But I, I had no idea, you know, what I wanted to make, what I was... One of the sort of motivating factors was... Um, the wine business that had been so exciting and fascinating in 1973 had by 1984 turned into this kind of funnel. And if you couldn't fit through the funnel, then you didn't get in. And, and, um, everybody was, you know, getting rid of stuff that they had made beautifully for years, Riesling and, and, uh, you know, Zinfandel and this and that and the other thing. And everybody wanted to make Cabernet Chardonnay, not much Pinot Noir. Um, uh, what else is there? <laughs> Sauvignon Blanc. Merlot, I guess. Yeah, that's. It seemed like yeah, and there was a little bit, but it was it was nobody. Nobody was ready to say in California at that point. Merlot is a really important grape, and we're gonna we're gonna put it on the map. But it wasn't too long after that 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 seemed to happen. Um, and and I just was totally bored with all that stuff. And I and so I I spent about four or five months just tasting, you know, going out and and uh, 
and buying stuff to taste and and tasting with friends and just trying to see what kind of resonated what you know what i kept coming back to what really moved me and i was thinking all the while in terms of what can i make that i actually know i can get grapes for and and what it sort of narrowed itself down to was you know i knew there was some syrah i knew i knew from my contacts mostly with old wineries that made jug wines that there was some grenache and probably some morvedre and so you know that's kind of the direction i was leaning and in the spring of that year i had i had started reading some trade publications including one uh that was called um practical winery uh, which became practical winery and vineyard and is now part of uh, wines and vines there was an article in one issue about whole cluster fermentation that i thought was pretty interesting and then um there was a, an article about Syrah, uh, and I thought, you know, you know, I want to know more about that. And then there was a letter from a guy named Robert Mayberry, who actually, as it turns out, wrote a book about the Rhone called The Wines of the Rhone Valley. And it's more like a, a textbook than a, you know, read-for-pleasure type book. It's more like a reference book. And uh, Mayberry wrote a letter to wines and or practical wineries saying... You know, somebody in California ought to find some old vine Grenache and some old vine Morvedra, maybe some Carignan, and and if there's any Syrah, and do a whole cluster fermented, you know, Cote de Rhone style blend. You know, probably be the perfect thing for California because they've got weather there that's suited to you know warmer climate varieties and so forth. So all this stuff's going around in my mind and. You know, and I'm and I'm feeling like okay, I've spent all these months doing this tasting. Now I got to make a decision. And we went to dinner at Chapinese one night. I live like five minute walk from the restaurant, and we we're waiting for a table. And we got a glass of of wine at the at the bar upstairs at the at the cafe. And I was telling Cornelia all this stuff, and she was saying, "Well, yeah, it sounds good. That sounds interesting. But you know, maybe we should think about that." And then we went up when they called us to our table, we went upstairs and sat down and, and they brought the, uh, the menu and the wine list and they were pouring, uh, they had a, a Syrah on the list from Cupe, the 1983 vintage, I think. And I had never heard of Cupe at the time, but I thought, well, this is Chez Panisse and you know, they're, they're paying attention to what they're doing. So this might be, you know, something, something of interest. And they opened it up and poured me some and I, and I, loved it. I thought it was really, really marvelous. And, and I, I just said, you know, I, I feel like I'm getting signals from the universe that this is what I'm supposed to do. So that's, that's where we went, you know, and, and I started looking for grape sources, uh, pretty shortly after that. And you were fermenting in a warehouse space in Berkeley. Yeah, there was a, there was a place that, uh, that a guy named Travis Fretter had leased back in maybe 77 and he actually lived in the house next door and he had a winery called fredder wine cellars there uh and he made wine from cabernet sauvignon that he and his father planted up on spring mountain back in the probably late 60s and they made a few other wines there as well and he his day job he he worked in wholesale in the bay area and he used to actually call on me uh in the the stores that i worked in 
you know, and I, I had to, of course, think about where I was going to do all this winemaking. And I, so I called him up and, and it just happened that he had decided to shut down his operation and he was hoping to be able to find somebody to step in and take over the space. So it was really extraordinarily lucky timing. So, you know, I agreed to do that. And then I ended up buying really a lot of his equipment. And Travis had a, an approach to making wine that was pretty laid back, pretty laissez-faire. I mean, there there were certain things that he knew he needed to take care of, and for the most part he did. But he would he would leave barrels untopped for a fairly long time, and they would develop a certain level of VA that just sort of became part of the style of, you know, what he did. Uh, he used really all old barrels, uh, and it was because he couldn't afford to buy newer ones. He used really, really tiny amount of sulfur dioxide, and and uh, and I I don't know that I could say with any accuracy why that was true, but uh, and and he kind of guided me through my first year of winemaking in his facility, and I uh, as I watched the wines develop uh, over the course of the first couple of years, it became apparent to me that I needed to make some adjustments to his you know approach to to doing things mainly just to be more attentive than, than he was being. But the fruit he was working with was very forgiving. It was mountain Cabernet that was uh, very concentrated and really quite wonderful. It was very, very good stuff. So, you know, there it, it would take a certain amount of abuse. And he typically left his wines in barrel for a couple of years before he, you know, got around to putting them in bottle. And part of that was the expense of a bottles and a bottling he you know he would have to wait till he had the money saved up and stuff and he didn't really want to be on extended credit with anybody he he wanted to you know pay for everything in the moment uh, which is a fairly sane approach i think but anyway so uh so that's where i started and that's kind of that was the starting point in terms of the winemaking instruction that i had other than you know what i knew from the, that first job that I did. When we started out, the first year, I, I, was, I was so lucky to get some of the grapes that I got the first couple of years. The first year we got this extraordinary Morvedra from the Brandlin Ranch on Mount Peter that taught me more about wine, making wine than any other, you know, any other piece of the picture over the last 30 years. It, it, you know, the, the grapes really uh, had so much character and so much um, spirit. You know, I felt like I'm just going to keep my barrels full. I'm going to, you know, keep everything clean. I'm going to, you know, because this stuff has a life of its own and it's doing what it wants to do. And um, we had made a picking decision that year that turned out to have been really, I think, perfect. And it was it was such a compelling wine that Everybody that tasted it just sort of did a double take. Holy smoke, what is this stuff? And I, I think that certainly over the years, I've, I've you know, I mean, going back to the, the question I was thinking of that I was asking myself in those first year or two, what is my role here? What is it that I'm doing that, that makes any difference at all? Because these grapes seem perfectly capable of making great wine all by themselves. I mean, all I'm doing is deciding when to pick them, paying attention, you know, punching them down, figuring out when the fermentation's down to a point where I, I should press off. 
you know, which it takes a, a, a little bit of learning, but really not that much. Um, so it, it, it's, it sort of felt like it became necessary to come up with a narrative in my own mind about what it is that winemakers are there for. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, of course, I'm in a situation where I'm not doing all the hard work out in the vineyard. I'm not the guy who, who you know, had to buy the land and clear the land and, and cultivate the land and, you know, buy the vines and plant the vines and put the deer fence up and, and uh, you know, do this, you know, the spraying for sulfur or do the leaf removal or, you know, you know, any of that stuff. So it's, so it's like I'm starting with a really incomplete piece of the, you know, the, uh, the picture and trying to fill in all those blanks in my mind. And uh, it's, it's been an ongoing series of revelations, I think, to, you know, to try and understand what it means to, to be a winemaker in California who doesn't grow his own grapes. And I think the changes that, a lot of the changes that have occurred in my approach have been more just um, learning that every vintage is really different trying to understand how you make any sense out of anything if that's true because it's almost like you know something but you know it really only specifically in relation to that vintage and the next vintage the rules don't quite fit they don't quite apply and you really can't actually do the same thing the same way and expect to have the same result it's going to be a you know a whole different ball game it's a little bit like contact improvisation or something you know it's like you know, improvis improvisational theater or something like that. It's it's got a, I mean, actually, one of the analogies that comes to mind being a uh, a singer and an occasional performer, doing the same song two times. I'm not exactly the same person the second time that I sing the song as I am the first time that I sing sing the song, and I'm not in the same mood, or maybe there's some other direction that my voice wants to go at a particular moment in the song that's different from you know what i had done the last time and you know all that kind of stuff it's not the kind of thing that you can sort of nail down and say this is this is how you do it you know but there is a recording you can drink later right <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's true it's true and but the problem with that of course is that you know what you've got will sound different at different points also and it's like bottle variation with wines or or what might not even be bottle variation but just you know that the wine's a little older than it was the last time you had it or maybe it's temperatures different or you're having different food or you know your mood and all that all that same kind of stuff your wife is now your ex-wife right. that kind of mood right changes yeah, 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 on you yeah, yeah, and you're like yeah. this wine sucks <laughs> or maybe the opposite right, maybe. Like, right. this is the greatest wine ever <laughs> right you began an engagement with the Durrell Vineyard. Mm -hmm. uh, when did that happen? How did that start? That's a, a great question in a way, partly because it illuminates uh, a little bit what it was like to be trying to make wine from Rhone grapes back in the mid-80s. You know, the first year we got Syrah from Estrella River Vineyard in Paso Robles. I knew that Bob Lindquist had made really good Syrah from there. So, you know, my impression was, oh, that'll make really good Syrah. And I figured all I got to do is call them up and tell them when I want them to pick it and everything will be fine. And and they completely screwed it up. And the wine was kind of good anyway, but 
the, the actual alcohol in the Syrah from that vineyard that year was 10.75. <laughs> so it was really light, and it was a little mystifying. We got Grenache from an old planting on Spring Mountain, uh, the Marston Ranch, that, that also has Cabernet that was, at least for a while, sort of famous. The Grenache was actually Grenache Gris, and it was made pretty decent wine, but there wasn't very much of it. There was a lot of the Australia River Syrah, but I, you know, pretty quickly decided I would never use that that fruit again. And then there was this little bit of this brilliant Morvedre on on Mount Vitor. You know, so the amount of wine that I was able to make out of all this stuff was quite small. And I thought, you know, if if I'm really going to be able to do something here that involves growing and, you know, and being able to kind of find my way, I need some more fruit sources. And so I set about trying to first find, you know, whether there was more more Vedra around, more Grenache and so forth. But second, trying to find people who might be willing to plant grapes for me. And at that time, it seemed for the most part that nobody in either of the main coastal counties, Napa and Sonoma, uh, really had any interest at all in in growing anything other than Cabernet and Chardonnay because that's where the that's where the money was that's where the market was, and I you know I would say to them well you know I'll pay you a good price and they would say yeah but what happens if you get run over by a fire truck you know and I put all this money into planting these grapes and now I got no place to sell them, but in the course of of visiting vineyards uh, and talking to growers. This guy in Alexander Valley who who said he was thinking about planting Syrah mentioned that he knew this guy, Steve Hill, who had planted Syrah at the Durrell Vineyard that uh, for a few years was going to Kenwood Winery. And Kenwood was actually, as it turns out, using it in their, the equivalent of what we used to call Burgundy in California, you know, just red table wine. Uh, that included some other things as well. And and he said, you know, he he said, I guess he had tasted the wine that Kenwood had made from the Syrah, and he said it was really good. So I, I called up Steve Hill, and as it turns out, and I didn't really find it out for a while, but Kenwood had decided, and they had told Steve Hill, if you can find somebody else who wants to buy this fruit, you should go ahead and, and sell it to him. Because we've decided that, you know, it doesn't work for our program. And so again, I was really lucky. The timing was perfect. I, you know, I got a hold of Steve. We hit it off really well, and he was willing to, and you know, had the fruit to sell me, and was willing to sell it to me. And as it turns out, you know, I asked for such a small amount, and there was still more of it available. Kendall Jackson swooped in to buy the rest of it, and it turned out it made extraordinarily good wine. That also really taught me a lot, you know, in terms of just you know finding out when it's presented to me what really great Syrah is like finding out what really great Morvedra is like and feeling the way I responded to it in a in a really visceral kind of way so yeah we started working with that fruit in 1986 and the original block of Syrah that they had which uh, was in uh, the Sonoma Valley Appalachian uh, right at the base of the hills on the west side of Sonoma Valley, um, got phylloxera uh, in the late 80s, but continued to produce really, really good wine for a number of years. Uh, when they figured out that they had phylloxera, uh, it was around 1990, they planted some acreage 
on kind of the other side of that first ridge of hills in, in an area that had been included in the Carneros AVA, or Sonoma Carneros. And they had some blocks where the soil was pretty much identical to what they had in where the original block was. The original block was on AXR1 rootstock, which is the rootstock that everybody had planted because it worked so well. And unfortunately turned out to have a, a vinifera parent and therefore was susceptible to phylloxera. So they, they planted these other blocks, some on the same kind of rocky clay soil that, that was in that original block, and then some on some more volcanic kind of red loamy soil. And I was given my choice of which of the blocks that I would take fruit from, and I took the ones on the red rocky volcanic soil partly because it was up higher up the hill, should drain a little better, a little bit more sun. Kendall Jackson, therefore, took the, the stuff on the, on the other soil. Between 1990 and 1996, actually, I guess first grapes from those new blocks were 92. So 92 to 95, Kendall Jackson tried to make wine on those new blocks and had all these problems that were just completely baffling and, and uh, confounding. And I tried making wine because they, they said, no, we don't want them, you know, after, after 95. So I tried making some wine from them in, in 96. And it was this weird thing where when the grapes got to a certain point, usually around 20 to 21 bricks, the vines would start to shut down and the pH would just go shooting up and the integrity of the flavors would just come apart and and just everything went to hell in a handbasket so you know there was there was clearly a problem with the rootstock and the and the site that they had chosen the the ones on the more volcanic soil made somewhat better wine but nothing in any of the new blocks made wine like the original block did so there was something about the axr rootstock in that site with that cyan wood that was you know like having the winning lottery ticket. It was the, the right stuff. And once they took those vines out, it's gone, never, never to be seen again. For a number of years, I've always really admired the Edmund St. John wines. Mm-hmm. I always thought, why is that? You know, why do I really mm-hmm. like this so much more than this other Syrah or this other Grenache-based wine? Or not that there's a lot of other Gamay or Vermentino around, but, and one of the, conclusions I kind of provisionally came to was that it seems like you were always picking sites that had strong soil signatures Mm -hmm. that weren't normal for California. Mm -hmm. So I consider all granite and limestone Mm -hmm. and volcanic soil to have really strong soil signatures for me that I can taste. Like I can be like, oh, okay. Another one is schist, but not that you have that, but you know, a a dummy. Wiley was actually more like schist. Is that true? Yeah. And that's actually uh, the Wiley property was where we originally put Vermentino and Grenache Blanc. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, is that something that, is this coincidence? Is that something that you look for? Am I wrong? You know, when you think about, because... Yeah, you're wrong. There's, <laughs> but, but there's not so much granite. There's not so much limestone. There's not so much... Yeah volcanic soil in california seemingly to me uh, actually there there's really a lot of volcanics oh okay yeah yeah um the the main area where you find limestone is the central coast there's a big piece of it that's that's ancient 
Cretaceous era limestone. And there were a few wines that we made down there. I felt like that really came through real strong, particularly with the Morvedra from Rosette Vineyard, which was kind of the organizing principle for the red wine that I made from the grapes down there. But also, Tablas Creek sold me some Roussan in 2004 that made a really extraordinary wine that has that kind of spine-tingling nervosity that that you get from limestone. And it's it's just, you know, it's palpable. It's really, really fun. Putting Gamay on granite was partly just knowing that Gamay and granite seemed to really like each other in France a lot. And interestingly, Gamay was kicked out of Burgundy because it doesn't generally do very well in limestone. But the, the other thing that was interesting, we, we put uh, originally put Gamay, on, you know, the, the planting at Witter's Vineyard, the first planting that we did in 2000 uh, was on volcanic clay loam soil, just like the soil at Fanati, but higher elevation. And it it gives wine with perfume. That's partly why I was optimistic about how it would do there. But the odd thing was that for the first, I would say, four or five years that we made wine from the Gamay at, at Witters, the red wine seemed to lack much of any tannin. And it was strange, you know, it was it was sort of like, well, the, the aromas are there, the acidity's there, the focus of flavors is there, but there's no texture. So it was kind of like, you know, the Mona Lisa without hair or something, you know, it, it just didn't, didn't come across quite right. And in the meantime, we had been looking for a couple of years for a site with granite and the Barsodi ranch, which is a place that has historically mainly just grown apples and produced a lot of apple juice had taken out a bunch of trees and had a bunch of land that they were willing to make available to plant grapes on. So Ron Mansfield, who's the guy I work with up in the foothills, you know, said, do you want to put some out there? And I said, yeah, that looks good. You know, we visited the site and, and uh, it's a bit lower than the Witters, but it's still up real high. You know, it's right around 3000 feet. We put vines in the ground in 2005, got first grapes in 2007 and right out of the chute, the tannin was there, the texture was there, and it was just, it, it had a much more distinctive, as you say, soil signature and and a kind of nerve to it from that, I think, that the Gamay at Witters did not have for red wine, which ultimately kind of led me in the direction that I've taken to, to just reserve the Gamay at Witters for making rosé uh, and to make all the red wine from the, the Barsotti fruit. One of the things I also associate with your wines quite often, I mean, not in the case of, of lighter Gamay, but is ageability. Mm-hmm. In a time when it seemed like a lot of people in California were going for wine you could drink on release, mm-hmm. you were making wines that really benefited from mm-hmm. a lot of time in the bottle. Mm-hmm. Conscious choice, just what the fruit gave you, how did that come about? I think really more than anything, it's just the way that my nervous system reacts to my raw materials you know it's it's and and i think that kind of goes back to what i was talking about about the question what's my role you know i'm the person who has to the wine has to be made as part of a process of the interaction between the fruit and the winemaker and so so it's not like there's a conscious idea that i've got 
I'm going to make the wine taste this way, but it's more like this conversation that I'm having with the fruit, which leads to these wines that are, for the most part, pretty structured. And I think it's that structure initially that uh, makes it possible for the aging to play out the way it does. The other thing I think, and, and this is something that has evolved over the years, part of this narrative that I keep trying to construct for myself about what I'm doing. I started, this was actually after um, a, a tasting I did in Chicago with Robert Mayberry, who'd written a book about the Rhone, who spent a couple of months every year in the Rhone during the summer. He was a instructor at a college in Michigan during the rest of the year. And then in the summer, he'd go live in, in the Vaucluse. But he invited me and another winemaker to Chicago for a weekend in 1989 to taste through a bunch of uh, multiple vintages of mostly not super well-known, but very, very good Southern Rhone red wines, uh, Grenache, Morvedra, Syrah blends. And what I was struck by, there were wines, this was 1989, there were wines going all the way back to the early 70s that were in, that had such freshness and, and such liveliness not primary fruit, it was definitely evolved, but the wine still had so much energy. And interestingly, I discovered after a certain amount of research and asking questions, most of the wines were actually made in concrete and never touched wood. But the other thing is that they were often in the bottle prior to the succeeding harvest. And the kind of um, ongoing model at that point in California, which still I think for the most part is a model today, is you put your wines in wood and you leave them there for couple of years, you know, or maybe a year and a half, in some cases, maybe two or three years. And, and they get better, you know, from that. And that suddenly, it started to make sense to me that that wasn't necessarily the, the thing that I wanted to be doing, nor what I felt would give me a successful outcome. And I actually made a wine in 1989 that I had already fermented, and it was in, we were using old puncheons at the time. So it was in wood, but it was in these larger you know, like 20-year-old puncheons, but it was still real primary and, and pretty fresh. And when I came back from Chicago, I started recognizing things in the wines that I was had been tasting in these wines from the Rhone at, at the tasting in Chicago and kind of putting things together in my head in a different way and decided to start bottling in the, you know, in the early summer uh, following the vintage, get the wines into bottle real fresh and let them do most of the aging in the bottle. And I think that has a huge part to play in that whole thing of, you know, how do the wines age? I think that freshness is a critical issue in California. I don't think you can really make fresh wines in the way that most California wine is being made. You know, I think the wines have to be picked with lower pH. And, you know, there are, I think, ways to farm that will make it possible to get ripeness, good flavor development, good phenolic maturity at lower pHs and certainly lower bricks levels that would make it possible to, you know, really boost the freshness level in California wine a lot. So decisions are being made either to do that or not to do it, but that's the direction that I've, you know, certainly found myself taking. What vineyards have been particularly engaging to you? And I, I ask because it's not always 
the ones that you're making currently, I feel, because you've lost some sources, yeah, you've yeah. gained others. Yeah. Sometimes it just hasn't worked out with the person who controlled the site right, or Philoxera right. comes in. Right, right. But looking back, what were the sites that really you learned from, you are impressed by, that lent something to, to you? They're pretty easy to pick out, and they're pretty numerous. Um, and it's true that there are a lot of them I don't work with anymore for all kinds of reasons, strange and normal. Um, certainly the Brandlin Vineyard. You know, they're, they're not just the vineyard, but also the, the two brothers who farmed it, who were extraordinary guys and great teachers, you know, people who I felt a very deep connection with, just partly for having spent time in their presence. And, you know, there's a, a handful of people that I, that I uh, have that same feeling about. Um, Marc Olivier, Domaine Pepier, and, you know, a few people like that. But the way that they took care of their vineyard was um, kind of timeless. You know, it, it, it felt like it could have been, you know, the 19th century or the 16th century or something. You know, it's just such a a natural kind of in syncness with the environment and you know the elements and so forth and and that the life in the fruit was completely inspiring you know just really really great they had a kind of decomposed sandstone and shale kind of ground that the vines were in that the morvedra seemed really really happy with you know, there there was Zinfandel grown there as well that was very, very good quality. There was also a small amount of old Carignan there that was absolutely unlike any Carignan that I've ever tasted from anywhere. Uh, the fruit was just stunningly pretty and had a really nice role to play in the wine that I put together using that and the, and the Morvedra from there. And there was some old Charbonneau there that was quite remarkable as well. But of the four red varieties, really the one that made the best wine was the Morvedra. And, and that is not taking anything away from the other ones. But this was, this was a vineyard that produced fruit that could make wine that would stand up proudly next to any red wine made anywhere by anybody. It was very, very special stuff. And I think th that original planting at Durrell was extraordinary. It was really, really amazing. You know, I think I told you this story about the Morvedra at Rosette Vineyard the first year that we got that. I, I felt like I was being communicated to directly, visually, by the by the grapes that year. The, you know, there was something going on in the ground there that was, you know, could have been a really great planting of Morvedra. And maybe it still will be. I don't know. They, you know, they had these really horrible problems with rodents, you know, ground squirrels and gophers and stuff. And... And the vines suffered greatly as a result. And I don't know whether they've gotten that all squared away or not. But the first couple of years, the Morvedra that came out of there was very, very good. Really, really good. And, and I mean, it was, it was kind of amazing. Morvedra has a reputation in France uh, as young vine wine of, of really not being suitable for carrying the name of the Appellation. In Bandol, you, you know, you, you can't use wine from vines that are less than, I think, eight or nine or 10 years old in a wine that you use the Appellation Bandol with. Um, it's got to be, you know, it's got to be vines of at least a certain certain age. But that, you know, the wine we were able to make with that, you know, first crop Morvedra uh, from, from Rosette 
some of the best wine I ever made. Really, really good. Certainly Barsotti and and Finotti. And and I I think I think Wiley was a really great site. I only made one vintage of pure Wiley Syrah of 2009, and it's a little on the monolithic side. It's going to take 30 or 40 years to, to really come around. Bassetti was also, I think, really quite a great site, but very challenging. And there, it was cold site, and there was one year when the fruit really, really didn't get ripe, which is kind of stunning for California because such a long growing season. But, and I, I don't know what, what exactly what explains it, but all the leaves were gone off the vines by probably mid October in 2002. And, Usually, you know, at that point, you, your vine is going to want to shut down. These grapes hung out there for another month and never really advanced beyond about 19 degrees sugar and actually made wine with some real character and some real flavor, but a screechingly high acidity and amazingly low pH. I mean, usually when the vines shut down, the pH goes goes way up. This didn't happen out there. But Bassetti... You know, it was a place where the vines really had to struggle and they were stressed by the cold and stuff. The concentration, the um, sort of depth and the aromatic nuance in the in the wines, I think, was pretty special. You know, I, I made Zinfandel from a whole bunch of different sources. And in virtually every case, I think in every single case, something happened that made it impossible to continue working with those grapes. And after a while, I just started thinking, I'm not supposed to make Zinfandel. So I stopped. <laughs> but, but we made some Zinfandel from a vineyard up in, in Amador County in, in Shenandoah Valley for a couple of years that was really, really quite good. You know, back in the late 60s and early 70s at Deaver Vineyard, uh, there was Zinfandel that I got a chance to taste in the 70s that I thought was amazing. It was it was a great argument for a great terroir in California, Zinfandel in decomposed granite in Shenandoah Valley, and and also in Fiddletown. Just, you know, very distinctive, very unique, and, you know, maybe an example of what Zinfandel is supposed to be, you know, or at its, at its very best. Like Barolo is an example of Nebbiolo in the right place, you know, in the, in the, you know, in the hands of the right winemakers. And I was inspired to try to make wine like that, you know, thinking, boy, I'd love to make something that tastes like that. And I, I felt like I, I really had a couple of years where I was able to do that. And interestingly, and I was really excited about it. And, uh, you know, I, for a number of years, I sent Robert Parker samples of wines that I made, and, and he said some very nice things about them numerous occasions. But he didn't like those infidels at all. And, and uh, he gave me really, really bad scores. I was actually kind of stunned. And I, and it, I started kind of unconsciously thinking, okay, so maybe those weren't such good wines or something. And, and you know, even though, you know, on the other hand, I, I really knew that they were really good. And I kind of forgot about them for a long time. And then, I don't know, seven or eight months ago, I opened up a bottle of one of those Zinfandels and, uh, I was having pizza and I was watching a baseball game and I wasn't thinking that much about the wine. I just thought, I'm, I want some Zinfandel. And I thought, well, that's a 94, but that's okay. I'll, I'll 
you know, it's it's probably still okay, you know. But I, I really wasn't expecting very much, and it blew my mind. It was wonderful. It was really good. And I kind of thought, holy smoke, you know, what have we come to when, you know, uh, when you can have something that's clearly really, really good and somebody in a position to say, oh, don't buy this stuff, uh, says that, you know, there's something wrong, you know. Anyway. One of the things that tends to come up when you tell stories about wines that you've liked that aren't your own is that they're often really good European examples. Mm -hmm. And one of the people it seems like you often drink with is Kermit Lynch. Mm -hmm. I often see his name come up. Mm -hmm. Has there been a back and forth there? Has he opened up bottles from his portfolio or said, hey, Steve, what about that? Or or no? We, uh, for quite a number of years, would get together for lunch, usually once a year at Chez Panisse, uh, and each of us would bring some wine. And I'd bring, you know, often things that I had made, and, and he would bring stuff from his cellar that he had imported. And it was actually, it was, it was pretty fun. One year, one of the Zinfandels that I did make, which was from the Brandlin Vineyard, the 1990 vintage, struck me uh, very early on. And it went, you know, it, it, it stayed that way really right through bottling and through the aging of the wine as reminding me in an uncanny way of the, um, the, the Gigondas wines from D Domaine de Caron from back in the late 80s and early 90s which I thought were marvelous, marvelous wines. And so one year when we were going to have lunch, I asked Kermit to bring a bottle of the 89 Caron Gigandas. And I brought the 90s Infandel. And I, I walked in and I put it down on the table and he said, what the hell is that? <laughs> Why, you know, I, he said, I thought we were going to drink something that was like similar. And I said, well, just wait, you know, just taste the wines. And so we opened them both up, and he tasted one, and then he tasted the other, and he kind of looked up, and he went, these are both really good. <laughs> um, it was a, a, always really great fun to, to share wine with him, because uh, he always had something wonderful to drink. And uh, it was also really pleasing to know that he really liked the wines that we were making and um, you know, felt like there wasn't, such a huge gap between the wines that he was selling and the and the kind of wine that I was making. So, were there other positive reinforcements around, or was it somewhat lonely in in the nineties? And well, I mean, Parker gave you some good yeah, scores yeah, in the nineties, yeah, so yeah. maybe it was more the two thousand era that was a little bit right, not right. the not the most rah rah Steve right, era. Right, yeah, um, yeah. I I uh, you know the I mean people like David Bowler and you know a lot of the people that I work with. Uh, at the level of sales uh, with the wines uh, have given me tremendous amount of encouragement. And, you know, a lot of my friends who are winemakers really have also done that. Bob Lindquist has been a great supporter. And and lots of winemakers from France, you know, who tasted the wines and, and really liked them. Uh, there, there were a series of classes at UC Davis for, you know, people who were winemakers uh, about working with Rhone grapes and they would get various wine producers to speak and one year and I think it was probably in 96 actually or it may have been 95 Alain Grayo was there uh, and also Alain Dugas from Chateau Lenert who apparently no longer owns that but he did for a while but they were they were both there and we 
there was a tradition to have dinner on Friday night at this little French restaurant in Davis the night before the class. And we were at dinner and Griot was sitting across from me and, and uh, I had admired his wines for a very, very long time and I never had the chance to meet him and was intending to say something along those lines and he beat me to it. You know, he said, you know, we'd never met, but I have your wines in my cellar and I really think they're wonderful. And, and I said, she took the words right out of my mouth. And then I got to visit him in, in 96 in Croce Hermitage and, and taste through his, his wines in barrel. And he had said something about something in the, um, in the character of the Syrah from Durrell struck him as familiar, something that he recognized in his own wine and vice versa. And tasting at his cellar, I had exactly the same experience. So, you know, there's just some shared sensibility, some, you know, some way of relating to the wines that was, that was pretty similar. I mean, the, you know, the best thing was when Francois Perrault from uh, Tompier came to the winery back in 87, and that Morvedre from Brandlin from 86 was in barrel, and we were tasting in the cellar Kermit and, and uh, Francois came. And we tasted through everything that I had made from 86, and he was very circumspect through the whole tasting. There's no reaction at all, and I'm, I was kind of dying, you know. Well, oh, I really want him to like my wines. And then we got to the Morvedre, and and suddenly, you know, he had the wine under his nose, and he took a sniff, and he just kind of stopped and closed his eyes for a minute and breathed in and out. And then he let out this sigh, and his eyes rolled up, and he said, La terre parle. And everybody just kind of went, yeah, yeah, this is really good. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of thing really fed me. It made me, you know, kind of feel like, you know, I, I knew when I was working with the fruit that there was something great there. And it, it was sufficient to kind of sustain me most of the time, but it was always great to feel the, you know, the affirmation from the, the other, you know, uh, winemakers around to say, that's really, really neat stuff. That's exciting. You know, that's really fun. That's everybody needs that, you know. Are there other stories in California that haven't been pursued in terms of a great variety in a place that you think would be interesting? Actually, I think Timorasa would be really fun in, uh, in Paso Robles, uh, you know, or, or maybe somewhere a little cooler, uh, in the Valley or, or, uh, someplace in Santa Barbara, Los Alamos, maybe, or someplace like that. I had a lot of fantasies about, you know, where to put certain grape varieties. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I love it when I taste something that I've never tasted before that I didn't even know existed that completely rocks me. And Tim Rosso was like that the first time. It's like, wow, where has this grape been hiding? You know, there, there used to be a fair amount of Melon de Bourgogne in California, which was, for the very longest time, misidentified as Pinot Blanc. And I, I, don't, I don't think that anybody ever really tried to make a Muscadet-type wine from it. But, and, and it was not necessarily planted in a place that made sense for that variety, although Shalone had some planted up at the Pinnacles um, that made very good wine, but it was made in such a different style. Uh, you know, much more attempting to be a white burgundy rather than a, a really fresh, you know, briny kind of a wine. 
So that's one of the fantasies, you know, find a place that's cold enough and, and close enough to the ocean and see if you can eke out a little muscadet, you know. Yeah. I, you know, I had fantasies about Pulsar. <laughs> and actually, I used to, you know, I, I, I used to really, really love Friuli and white wine and would think about, you know, Pinot Grigio, uh, and I made Pinot Grigio for a while, and then and then started calling it Pinot Gris because it tasted more like Pinot Gris. Thought about Tokai Friulano, didn't really know that a lot of the grapes that were identified in California as Sauvignon Vert were, in fact, Tokai Friulano. And one of the places where that grape was growing that I wish that I had known about that misidentification was Brandland. There was some of that variety up there for, you know, the first six or seven or eight years that I worked with, with grapes up there. And that could have been really fun. And I, and I had fantasies of smuggling Ribola Giala into the country, but somebody beat me to it. <laughs> Pulsard is coming, you know, not necessarily for me, but it's coming. Something that you've worked with for a few years and seemingly found more and more success with each year is, is Gamay mm -hmm. and also Vermentino. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your engagement with those two yeah, very different yeah, grape varieties. Yeah. Gamay goes way back to the beginning of my time in the wine business when I was a wine buyer and would do a lot of tasting, partly just because I was being offered wines to sell all the time. And in, in fact, the the company that my friend who drove the delivery truck for worked with a negotiant company called Bonsal Segerman that uh, used to bring in a, a Cru Beaujolais from each of the different communes. And they were often very, very good and very heady and fresh and absolutely ravishing, beautiful fruit and so pleasurable to smell and to taste that if I didn't have a lot of friends helping me drink the bottle, I would, you know, just guzzle the whole thing and feel totally glad through the whole experience. And then, you know, the next morning, wish I'd been a little bit more circumspect about it. So Gamay was something that I, you know, I, I truly loved. And, you know, the idea of getting to somebody to, to actually plant Gamay in California seemed like a, a, a a very unlikely proposition, but my relationship with Ron Mansfield, who I, you know, work with in the foothills, was such as it evolved over the years that he would very often come to me to talk about a a, a farmer who had been growing pears or apples or, you know, peaches or something, and had decided they, you know, they were not making any money doing that, and they wanted to grow wine grapes. And would I come look at the spot and see what I help him figure out what to plant there? You know, what what would make sense? And uh, in 1999, Ron asked me if uh, we could drive down to Paso Robles together because he'd been hearing about all kinds of good stuff going on down there, and he wanted to see what was going on. So I made a bunch of appointments, and we went down to visit people down. Paso Robles and, and Santa Barbara and uh, on the way down there he was telling me about this guy who had Bartlett pears at this really high elevation site in, in uh, uh, El Dorado uh, who had decided that he wanted to take out pears and put in wine grapes and he described the site he said it's at 3400 feet 
It's on a north-facing slope. It's got volcanic clay loam soil, just like the soil at Fanati. And, you know, it seemed like it'd be a very, very cool kind of site. And did I have any ideas about what kind of grape to plant there? And before I could actually even venture a suggestion, he said, how do you think Pinot Gris would be there? And I said, you know, actually, it sounds like a really good site for it. I said, but you know, what I would really love to see in a, in a spot like that would be Gamay. And uh, my mind was racing, you know, I was thinking, I'm going to trick this guy into planting Gamay for me. And he immediately said, well, isn't that what Ken Johnson had planted over where you had him grafted over to Pinot Gris? And I said, well, you know, it used to be this, the grape that Ken had used to be called Napa Gamay, but it's really Valdier. And it, it, it ripens at the wrong end of the season. He, he could never get his Valdiguier above 20 degrees bricks because it, it's just too late of a grape. And it, the, you know, there wasn't enough sustained heat to really get it ripe. But if you put Gamay, you know, in a spot like that, or better yet, you know, up where Witters is, it ripens right at the beginning of the season. It makes a wine that everybody's going to want to drink within a year or so. So it, you know, it'll, you know, it's not something that you're going to have any trouble selling as long as they're not, you know, completely devoted to Petit Sirah or something like that. You know, I think if somebody planted a little bit of Gamay up there and, you know, could make a few hundred cases of wine, he could sell that. It wouldn't be a problem. And he was intrigued. And, and we uh, we drove back from Paso that evening and, and uh, he spent the night at my house and we had dinner and I opened up some bottles and he flipped you know he said man these are really really good they're really fun to drink and i said yeah that's you know that's kind of the whole idea so he went back to to bob witters and and said this is what i think we should do and he suggested they plant it was three acres of pinot gris and four acres of of gamay and bob said sounds good to me <laughs> and you know i felt like the cat that swallowed the canary you know it it's just like wow that was way too easy ron said afterwards he said now you're going to buy these grapes right and, and you promised to buy them for you know the first half dozen years i said don't worry about it i'll, I'll do it but then i you know i talked to my friends you know uh, other friends in the business some of the people like the guys that hang out on wine disorder and at least one person said to me you've really lost your mind <laughs> but you know we we've managed to to somehow convince enough people that we've been able to sell all the wine and and interestingly you know it's been 12 vintages of gamay at witters and and seven at barsodi and now there's a clamoring for gamay at the level of you know not just restaurants and retail stores but wine producers you know some of them are lining up to get the second crop from the gamay and some of them are talking to ron about planting it for him and stuff like that so it's it's really interesting how things are kind of turning with that. Vermentino, when I visited Domaine Tampier on my honeymoon in 1986, at dinner the, the night we were there, they actually had us overnight. They found out it was our honeymoon, and they decided that they would be our hotel. I was asking, you know, if you guys, you guys don't make any white wine, but if you did, what what would the grape be? And Francois said, you know, it's not permitted in the Appellation, but the roll grape would, I think, would do really well in our terroir. 
and it's he said it's called vermentino in in italy and some other parts of the world and uh so i was very intrigued and he said you know they make wine from it in ballet near nice and uh it was very hard to find any wine from ballet anywhere <laughs> and 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 any that had a, enough of a percentage of vermentino in it that i felt confident that I could get some idea what it tasted like. So I kind of forgot about it for a while. And then just a few years later, we were in France again, and then Italy in Liguria. And we were actually, uh, we spent a few days in Cinque Terre hiking around and stuff. But uh, there was a, the place we were staying, there was a little trattoria behind the B&B. And they were serving this wonderful local pasta dish called pansotti with walnut sauce. And there was Vermentino to drink. And I, you know, I said, oh, you're finally going to get to taste it. And, you know, so we drank some. And, and I immediately, I just, you know, felt like, why don't we have this grape in California that would be so good? It's, it's so much more expressive than Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc. And it's, it's, it's more fun and lively, you know, but I mean, it's not about being important, you know, Chardonnay wants to be important, or at least has wanted to be important, Sauvignon Blanc somewhat less so, but Fermentino is just a pleasure to drink, and, and you know, really wonderful at the table, really versatile and, and uh, enjoyable. On that same trip that we had gone to Chiquiteri, just a few days before that, we'd been at Bocastel on the day that they shipped their plant material to the United States for the Tablas Creek project. And I had no idea, but they had actually included in the plant material Vermentino for Tablas Creek. So several years later, I discovered that there was, in fact, now Vermentino in California, and then I just had to find somebody to, to grow it for me. And the Wiley property where we initially put it, it's a very, very rocky, schistous kind of uh, ground up there, especially on the northeast side where ultimately we ended up planting those those vines. It's really, really interesting soil, and it, it uh, it's a fairly warm spot, but there's a tremendous amount of westerly wind in the afternoons there during the summer, even when it's like 95 or or above at you know maybe two or three in the afternoon during the later hours of the afternoon and early evening the winds really come up and it cools down quite a lot and so there's some real moderating influence and it's cold up there at night mainly from mountain air coming down from uh, you know the high sierras we discovered the first year uh that we had grapes that a the two grapes vermentino and grenache blanc ripen at the same time. I guess we haven't talked about Grenache Blanc, but that's part of what we also planted at, uh, at that vineyard. And that the grapes have a tremendous amount of flavor at just a little over 20 degrees Briggs. So that if we pick somewhere between 20 and a half and 22, we've got really nice ripe fruit, really good acidity, really good low pH, usually 3.3 or below. So something with some real backbone to it, but also a tremendous amount of, of really expressive fruit and spice and just all the stuff that makes this, the wine fun to drink. The, the Grenache Blanc was sort of a, a, a just this thing that kind of developed. Ron called me when they were going to put the vines in the ground on the day that they were going to plant them and said that he had some Grenache 
Blanc vines because he had ordered too many for another vineyard and wondered whether it would uh, be a good idea to put some where we were putting the, the Vermentino. And I didn't hesitate. I, you know, I, I, it was sort of like one of those things like, what do you think about Grenache Blanc? Oh, I like Grenache Blanc without thinking, what am I actually going to do with this stuff when I get it? And then come to discover when it got to be close to harvest that first year when there was fruit on the vines, that not only was there a little bit, but in fact, there was almost as much Grenache Blanc as there was Vermentino. But they were ripe at the same time. We had too little fruit to actually press them separately because we wouldn't have had enough to actually operate the press. So we were in a position where we pretty much had to just throw them together into the press anyway. And given the fact that they were both ripe, grown on the same ground, farmed by the same hand, why not? You know, And the result was sufficiently pleasing that we have done it every year since then. You know, It's really worked out nicely. Steve Edmonds of Edmonds St. John Winery in California, like the mailman as a winemaker, he's always delivered. <laughs> Thank you for being here today. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.